0: Nine out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring today. Robert Half is here to help. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today.
1: When the coronavirus hit, it disrupted supply chains around the world.
2: Coronavirus driving a consumer scramble for hand sanitizers, even bars of soap. This is our finished product. This has become white gold in a nation where flour and yeast are in short supply. One of the central business storylines of the coronavirus crisis has been the shortage of so-called N95 respirator face masks.
1: So while you might be able to do without flour for a week or two, or make a DIY mask, there was one supply chain breakdown that got people worried. We started running low on blood. Coronavirus has forced a cancellation of many blood drives, creating a shortage when it's needed the most. Social distancing measures brought these blood drives screeching to a halt. Since the pandemic started sweeping through the U.S. in March, the Red Cross says there have been one million fewer donations than normal. Chris Roda is the president of biomedical services at the American Red Cross.
0: And that hit us uh, very hard. So we, we went into kind of emergency mode right, right around mid-March where the inventories uh, started to drop dramatically. And we were rationing blood to hospitals pretty aggressively.
1: Luckily, those rations were enough mostly because hospitals had stopped doing elective surgeries to make space for coronavirus patients. If that hadn't happened...
0: The supply of blood would have forced hospitals to stop doing elective and, and scheduled surgeries and, and to conserve blood products for those patients
1: that are that are critical in need and that obviously don't have a choice. The pandemic revealed how much we rely on donors to support our blood supply. My colleague Nora Eckert has been looking into it. Hey, Nora. Hi, Janet. So what's the backup plan when the blood supply fails like it almost did a few months ago?
0: I think the startling thing is we don't have one right now. Like Chris Rhoda said, hospitals just have to ration blood when supplies are low, like what we saw during the pandemic. But researchers are working on a solution,
1: and that's making blood in their labs. From the Wall Street Journal, this is the future of everything. I'm Janet Babin. Today on the podcast, manufactured blood. We'll explore how scientists are creating it in their labs and how far we are from mass producing it.
2: ADP knows anything you hear. Anything you don't hear, anything you kind of heard, anything you weren't supposed to hear and now have to pretend like you didn't, can change the world of work. From HR to payroll, ADP designs forward-thinking solutions to take on the next anything.
1: Okay, Nora, I'm assuming people just didn't start thinking about making lab-produced or artificial blood during this pandemic. How long has research in this field been going on? Scientists have been experimenting with lab-produced blood for
0: decades, but due to issues with funding or scalability, we're just now seeing the start of clinical trials. And even though we're all really thinking about coronavirus right now, what really accelerated our work on blood substitutes was actually another virus. That was the HIV-AIDS epidemic in the 1980s.
2: The evidence was growing that the cause was not only something new, but something transmitted by blood.
0: Thousands of people were infected with HIV through blood transfusions. This was before the blood supply could be tested for HIV in 1985. So it made people
1: really scared. There was a panic going on. I remember my grandparents being fearful about the blood supply. People before they had surgery would uh, have their own blood extracted so they could use it during surgery. There were all these fears about whether the US blood supply was safe. Yeah, and that's when a lot of my sources told me we started shifting our
0: national attention to looking at the blood supply. We realized it had to be tested, it had to be controlled. And we had to dump a lot of blood during that time because it was contaminated. I spoke to one of the researchers who's been studying blood since the late 1980s. His name is Dr. George Daly. He's now the Dean of Harvard Medical School and he runs a lab there that studies this. Ultimately through various public health measures and very aggressive testing, very sensitive and specific testing for HIV, the blood supply was made extremely safe. But as we've seen in the recent years with the emergence of new pathogens, whether it's Zika, or Ebola or, you know, most recently COVID, there's always a worry about new infections that can contaminate the blood. Again, raising the value and importance of being able to more carefully control the manufacture and presentation of blood through, a, you know, a different system. That different system he's alluding to is one
1: where blood could be made in a lab. Okay, and we're going to break down those new developments in just a bit. But first, Nora, can you explain what do you need to make blood?
0: Well, just a refresher from probably what we learned in high school biology. Blood is made up of different parts. You've got the red blood cells, they carry oxygen. You've got white blood cells, they fight infection. Then there's plasma, that carries nutrients, salts, and proteins. And then there are platelets. They make your blood clot when you get a cut. All of these parts are important because they all serve different functions. So far, no one has come up with a complete replacement, one total package, for all of these functions. Instead, different research groups are focusing on trying to produce the individual parts of blood. There's been some early testing of red blood cell substitutes, including in Jehovah's Witnesses, because most don't accept blood transfusions as part of their religion. But most of the momentum that I saw in my reporting was with labs trying to grow their own platelets. One of the top researchers doing this is Dr. Cedric Gavart, and he's a consultant hematologist who leads a research group in transfusion medicine at Cambridge University.
2: They are rather an important cell, albeit the smallest cell in the body. Uh, But equally, uh, if you don't have enough platelets, uh, the bleeding symptoms are, are really horrendous.
1: Can I just stop right here and say, I am shocked that platelets are the smallest cell in the body. There's a lot of small cells in the body.
0: I know. I know. I was shocked when he said that too. I had to go back and double check, but it's true. They are. And even though platelets are so small, they're really powerful. They're really important for patients undergoing chemotherapy or people who sustain traumatic injuries because they often receive platelet transfusions. But they're also quite finicky. They can only be stored for about five days, and they have to be sort of stirred around to keep them from going bad.
2: It's a bit like leaving your jam jar open on your kitchen surface for five days in a row. It will start to grow stuff.
0: So part of the reason he's trying to figure out how to manufacture them in the lab in vitro is because platelets are usually in the shortest supply because they have that shorter shelf life.
1: And when you say in vitro, you mean basically in a Petri dish? Yep, that's right. That's in vitro. Got it. All right, so this makes sense. I mean, it's kind of like how you have to buy milk every week. Well, if you drink milk, which I don't, um, but flour can last a month or so. Yep. Yeah, exactly right. So I get why platelets need a bit more backup, but I'm still trying to figure out in my head how they actually make more of them in a lab. You know what I mean? Now, platelets don't just reproduce on their own. You need stem cells
0: to make them. And those are the cells in your body that have all the information in them to make other cells. Those stem cells can turn into skin cells, liver cells, heart cells, or blood cells. For a while, researchers were using these things called hematopoietic stem cells, which just means blood stem cells. And they were working decently well, but they weren't really sustainable. Here's Dr. Gavart again.
2: Those stem cells are very short-lived. You cannot bang them, you cannot expand them as a stem cell. You you can only really use them once. And once we use them, they will go on.
1: Got it. Okay, so those cells did the job in that researchers could turn them into whatever blood cells they needed at the moment, but then they needed to go back and start over?
0: Exactly. They don't regenerate. So to make platelets, you would need a huge supply of these stem cells. So then they turned to this specific kind of stem cell called a pluripotent stem cell. And that's special because it can create almost any other type of stem cell. But again, there was a supply issue. And this was a really exciting development. Scientists discovered that you could actually turn almost any cell in the body into a pluripotent stem cell. They call these induced pluripotent stem cells, which is a mouthful, so we just refer to them as IPS cells. And that was a pretty big deal.
3: The Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine 2012, jointly to John B. Gurdon and Shinya Yamanaka For the discovery that mature cells can be reprogrammed to become pluripotent."
0: So because you can take almost any cell in the body and turn it back into an iPS cell, you have even more unlimited resources. Gosh, I'm wondering how he does that without turning back time. Yamanaka found these four genes that he could put into a mature cell those genes would signal to the cell, hey, it's your job to go back and become an IPS cell.
1: So that's sort of like taking a fully grown tree and telling it to go back into the ground and become a seed.
0: Yes, and you can take that seed and grow any type of tree. And even more than that, you can take that seed and tell it to make more seeds. So that obviously changed everything because it allowed researchers to create this unending supply. And Dr. Gavart explains that when you're trying to make blood cells, that's half the battle is having that supply.
2: So you can literally make vast amount of those, freeze them down and have a bank of stem cells that you can then use subsequently to make whatever tissue you want. And in terms of manufacturing process, that the very first step that you need to have is called a, a bank Uh, a master cell bank from which you're going to make your product. And that's what pluripotent stem cell have allowed us to do.
1: So this is like having unlimited resources, which has to be super important when you're thinking about manufacturing blood at a very large scale. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Okay, we've got our master bank of iPS cells, but how do we turn that bank into blood? and create a supply large enough so that we can fall back on it when we need it. The future of blood coming up after the break.
2: Rapid expansion. We're ready. Worker shortage. We're good. Anything can change the world of work. A celebrity buys the company. Depends on who it is, but relax, we've got ADP. From HR to payroll, ADP designs forward-thinking solutions to take on the next anything.
1: This is the Future of Everything. I'm Janet Babin. So, Nora, we were right in the middle of talking about how researchers are now able to create a bank of these IPS cells to use to make platelets. But how do they actually do it? How do they manufacture blood? All right, I'm sorry because I know this is quite technical,
0: but I have to add another wonky term in here, and that's megakaryocyte. Megakaryocyte. Okay, what is that? It's like the mother cell. It's this really big cell. We talked about platelets being so tiny. Megakaryocytes are huge cells, and they make platelets in the bone marrow. So how do you tell that stem cell to become a megakaryocyte? while you actually rewire the guts of the cell. You add little switches into the DNA of the pluripotent stem cell that sort of nudge it and say, hey, your job is to become a megakaryocyte.
3: We
2: add those switches, literally add them, into the cells, so that we start making all the proteins that literally change your stem cells into a megakaryocyte.
1: Okay, so you turn these stem cells into the big mother cells, the megakaryocytes that make platelets, and then what happens?
0: It takes a special recipe to make those megakaryocytes produce platelets.
2: It's literally like baking. You have a tray full of fluid and a cell starts to proliferate in it, and then you reach a certain cell number. But right at the time when they mature, you ask them, can you release platelets? And they can potentially release a 1,000 platelets. So the number of cells that you make through that process suddenly multiply by a 1,000.
1: That's a huge advantage. I'm still thinking about cooking with blood. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> lost me a little bit. But this is really fascinating and amazing, and I see how it could be a huge advantage. Not appetizing, though. But here's the thing.
0: Mm. For a transfusion, you don't need thousands. You need about 50 billion platelets for just one unit. And for most transfusions, you need six to 10 of those. And remember, platelets die fast, so you have to be able to make them all at once. These researchers at Kyoto University in Japan, their names are Dr. Koji Ito and Dr. Nayoshi Sugimoto, they realize the problem. Megakaryocytes in your body have blood flowing around them.
3: We, th- we found that the bloodstream, blood flowing around the megakaryocytes that produce platelets had a turbulent turbulence around it. So by that way, megakaryocytes we think are stimulated in the right way and start pre- releasing platelets.
0: That's Dr. Nayoshi Sugimoto. So what he's saying there is that megakaryocytes outside of the body need to be agitated in the same way they are in the body so they could release enough platelets for a transfusion. So these researchers tested a bunch of different methods to do this, but the best one was something I heard described as similar to a French press. Like for your coffee.
3: French press? Oh, (laughs) uh, yeah, by pressing downwards, it'll create a turbulent flow, yes.
0: So you can imagine a French press, you kind of press down and pull back up and that creates this turbulence and the coffee grounds swirl around in the water. And that seemed to work for platelet production. They've created something called a bioreactor that does just what the French press would do for coffee. But in this case, it's for megakaryocytes. And these bioreactors hold eight liters. That's just over two gallons.
3: By identifying that, we were able to make an efficient and scalable reactor. And uh, from scaling up to eight liter scale, we managed to produce uh, 10 to the 11th number of platelets.
0: In case that math just got lost, he's saying they produce 10 to the 11th, which is 100 billion platelets, and that's enough for a transfusion. That's scalable. Now, to be clear, Dr. Ito and Dr. Sugimoto's lab is not the only one using a bioreactor to stimulate the megakaryocytes, but they've had the most success so far at replicating what actually happens to them in our bodies.
1: That's definitely a huge jump in scalability. But have they tested these lab-made platelets out on anyone yet? They have a clinical trial, but it's not what I usually think of when I hear clinical trial, because there's just one subject. Yeah, that's a bit unusual. I'm assuming there's a good reason for that.
0: Yeah, it was basically the final shot for this person because they have a condition. It's called a refractoriness condition where they don't make enough platelets themselves and they also really can't accept donations from other human donors. Dr. Ito's lab moved forward with testing out IPS platelets in this special case because as the platelets come from the patient, him or herself, they're supposed to be safer.
3: The platelets that's derived from you produced from you so you cannot be rejected that's uh, one thing that we did in a clinical trial
1: so basically this one person has a really life-threatening condition and it's unique to that person and they could seriously benefit from this research so that's why it's been approved to have one person in this clinical trial is that right
0: Yeah, and ideally they want to and they're planning on doing bigger clinical trials than this one, but this current study is set to finish up early next year. It's a big deal in the field because even though it's just one patient, it's one step closer to having data about how this sort of manufactured blood works in humans. And this is a really competitive thing for researchers in the field. They're all trying to be the first person, the first lab, to get to that clinical trial.
3: Right now, only our group has done the clinical trials. But uh, many groups in the world are approaching in uh, different ways. Right? So it's a bit getting quite competitive. And usually competi- competition uh, moves the field forward.
1: And what is in it for the researchers? I mean, is this just for the glory of being the first to create manufactured blood?
0: I think there's a few things here. Something that Dr. Gavart told me is that it could potentially be a Nobel Prize winning technology if they're the first ones there. So that's a big prestige element for a researcher in the field. But of course, there's money involved in this too. Because if you look at how widely platelets are used across the world, if you can engineer, if you can be the the lab to engineer a backup to that, you're going to be in high demand. And there's also a therapeutic potential. You can use these platelets to deliver therapies to treat cancers or other diseases. So that's why we're seeing a lot of companies get involved in addition to all the people in the lab space. So Dr. Gavart is on the scientific advisory board for a company called Platelet Biogenesis, and a competitor of theirs is Megakaryon, and Dr. Ito is on their scientific advisory board. So there's a lot of players in this space, and it's actually causing it to pick up some momentum. Even though there's money in this, money is also one of the big barriers to this technology succeeding. Right now, it's extremely expensive to make these manufactured platelets. To put that in context, Dr. Gavart told me it costs between $750,000 to $1 million to make a bag of platelets in his lab. For Dr. Ito, it's a little bit less than that, but compare that to the about $500 that hospitals pay on average for a bag of human platelets, and that's quite a steep price difference.
1: Yeah, I'm just wondering why it costs so much.
0: What Dr. Gavart told me is the main cost comes from the media they need to culture these cells. Think of it like the ingredients they need in their recipe to make platelets. But it's sort of like if you're making a car by hand versus producing it in a factory. Right now, it's going to cost a lot more because they are making these things by hand, essentially. But as the technology scales, Dr. Gavart said he's confident that the cost will continue to go down.
2: Like any technology, uh, once it starts to work, it generates a momentum of its own. um, And I wouldn't be surprised if the next three, four years would see clinical trial with in vitro derived platelets on a much larger scale with several patients, larger dose, and be done in the U.S., in Europe, and, and in Japan.
1: So it sounds like we're getting closer. Yes, we're definitely getting closer. Nora, I'm wondering what manufactured blood looks like in the real world. I mean, how could these scientists ever even make blood on a scale large enough to supply all of our hospitals?
0: Well, th- this wouldn't just be in labs. We're talking factories. Dr. Govart had a pretty interesting idea that you might recognize for that.
2: What Charlie and a Chocolate Factory but apply to platelets. I, I think there, there is no question that the, such things will exist.
0: So he's envisioning these big stirring tanks.
2: 500, 2,000 liters into which your megakaryocyte will be brewed. Um, these in turn may be frozen in batches that will be distributed.
0: And these frozen batches are then sent to secondary processing plants.
2: Where you will have a specific device into which those megakaryocyte will be fed, and then the other end your platelets will come out.
0: Then you have this whole army of transport vans to get them to places that need the cells most. So thinking of the pandemic, that could be an area of the country where there's a big surge of cases and more blood drives are canceled. But broadening it even more, if you think about the developing world, there's a huge need for clean blood. Low-income countries have about one-fifth of the amount of blood donations of high-income countries, according to the World Health Organization. So it's a big need, whether just for an area of the U.S. that's hit by a hurricane or a more sustainable solution for countries that need it.
1: You know, it's interesting because I think the pandemic had us thinking about the blood supply, and yet here we are thinking about even more reasons that the human blood supply we have could be threatened.
0: I completely took this entire system for granted. When I first heard of these shortages, it was really the first time I got exposed to this whole world of people working to support our blood supply, whether we're in a pandemic or not. I think the reason this came front of mind for me is it exposed something that we still rely on humans to build. We rely on humans being healthy enough to come out and give blood. And the pandemic has shown us in a lot of ways that we can't always rely on that. So one day, we might need a backup.
1: Nora, thank you so much. Thank you, Janet. The Future of Everything is a production of The Wall Street Journal. Stephanie Ilgenfritz is the editorial director of The Future of Everything. Lee Camping-Carter is our digital director. This episode's sound designer is Sean Marquand. Our reporter for this episode is Nora Eckert. Our producer is Casey Georgie. Kateri Yoakam is The Wall Street Journal's executive producer of audio. I'm Janet Babin. Thanks so much for listening. Enter a revolutionary business world where AI meets power with Intel Core Ultra and Intel vPro. Imagine PCs that boost productivity, creativity, and collaboration with cutting-edge AI. They're gateways to innovation, engineered with powerful AI performance, hardware-based security, and AI-powered threat detection. Plus, they're built sustainably and can be managed remotely. Transform your workflow with Intel Core Ultra and Intel vPro today. No product can be absolutely secure. Become an IT hero at intel.com slash heroes.